All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckaholics? What the fuckaholics? You know, I'm Mark Marin, and this is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. And I'm going to, trigger warning, I'm going to talk openly and uh, candidly about sobriety. I'm going to mention the program, although I know uh, in some ways, in some circles, in some traditions, that's a no-no, but I find that it's important. I have found that on this show, one of the main reasons people send emails in or reach out, it's about the inspiration they get around thinking that they can live a sober life. Now, there is a tradition in AA that states that you you can't be public in press, radio, or films. And I think primarily, and I'll probably get emails about this, that was, uh, so if that person talking about it is not seen as a representative, and if they relapse or speak badly or or, uh, things don't work out, that it implicates the program. I am not a representative of AA. I am a a member of AA in terms of uh, attributing it with my sobriety. And yesterday I had 24 years sober and that's fucking crazy. It's crazy. 24 years sober. And I look, I'm not looking for support or applause or anything else. I can't fucking believe it. I can't believe it, but I got it. I am going to talk openly and honestly about sobriety and some of that is going to include the fellowship and uh that's that because i want to share and i think uh, this is as fine a place to share as as anywhere i i feel uh, this is a uh, a safe room so adam conover is on the show he's a comic and writer he's known for his show adam ruins everything which ran for six seasons on true tv his recent show is the g word on netflix where he tries to explain the u.s government he hosts the podcast factually with adam conover and importantly right now at this juncture he's on the negotiating committee for the writers guild of america he's on the front lines literally sitting there at the table when the table is there to be sat at which does not seem to be often or forthcoming, but outside of his career and his background, we do uh, talk fairly specifically about the strike and, you know, what's at stake, what it means, what the process is for negotiating. And, uh, and he's, he's one of the guys on that, uh, on that committee. So that's happening. Shows folks, let me make it clear to you that, I'm doing some dates at comedy clubs over the next few months, one one or two a month. Uh, this is all new material, uh, give or take one or two bits that sort of carried over from the stuff that wasn't used on the special. But I would say at least a, probably an hour of new stuff. And I'm at the Salt Lake City Wise Guys tomorrow and Saturday, August 11th and 12th for four shows. Then five shows at Helium in St. Louis, September 14th through 16th. I'll be at the Las Vegas Wise Guys, which is a nice little room in the Arts District, September 22nd and 23rd for four shows. And in October, I'm at Helium in Portland on October 20th through 22nd. Those shows are selling out. So go get on that now if you want to go. I think three out of the five shows are already sold out for October 20th and 22nd in Portland. You can go to WTFPod.com for tickets. Something else I'd like to talk about. We lost some people, obviously, obviously. 
Sinead O'Connor passed away uh, a little while ago. A very sad and tragic life in, in a lot of ways, but a, a, an amazing artist who I never talked to. But it's a great loss. Pee Wee Herman, uh, another great comic artist who I never talked to, uh, died sadly last week. And this week, uh, Robbie Robertson died yesterday from the band. Uh, that You can go listen to that episode on WTF if, if, you, if you're curious. That was like a long, thorough episode. If you're interested in Robbie's take on the history of the band, which he was a member of, that's episode 781. So rest in peace, Robbie, Pee Wee, Sinead. Also, Rodriguez, who I never got to talk to, uh, has passed away uh, yesterday, I believe. And William Friedkin. William Friedkin was one of the great directors of the 70s, real ballsy, balls-to-the-wall uh, character, but did some amazing movies, uh, some of them being uh, The French Connection, The Exorcist, Sorcerer, Live and Die in L.A., to name a few. I just watched French Connection again uh, for I don't even know how many times. Sometimes I just put it on in the background. And look, the conversation I had with William Freakin was a two and a half hour conversation and it covered everything. Like just amazing stories about all his movies and his life. A truly epic talk that somehow ends with the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. And everything kind of loops together. It, you know, there's intrigue, there's craft, there's stories, there's murder. It's episode 684 from February 2016. And in this clip that I'll play for you now, he explains how his philosophy of not doing a second take extends to life. And you were capturing it like immediately with that documentary style. So yeah. you got all that life. No second takes. Yeah. There are no second takes in life, Mark. Is that true? Try it sometime. <laughs> Try to do a retake on when you were 15 years old. I, you know, I feel okay. I don't think there's too many things I need to retake. You? I would if I could, but I can't. So yeah. what the hell? What would you change? Or as you say, what the fuck? Yeah. Right? Yeah. No. What can you do? No. Change? No. But, you know, the Robert Frost poem about the road not taken. Yeah. you walking in a forest and there's a path that breaks left and yeah. another that breaks right. And the decision you make right there to take that path is what leads you to the rest of your life. Hmm. And why did you make that decision then? Who in the hell knows? You know the great story, The Lady and the Tiger? Mm -mm. You do? No. Oh, was, when I was a kid, I read it. You know, yeah. about some guy in ancient Rome who uh, falls in love with the daughter of uh, one of the Caesars, one of the yeah. kings. And the, he, the king says, okay, I'm going to put you into the arena where the Christians are thrown with the lions. And there'll be two doors. Out of one door will come a man-eating lion, yeah. if you choose that door. And out of the other door will come my daughter. And if you choose the right door, you'll have my daughter. And if you choose the wrong door, your memory. Yeah. And the story never reveals what door this guy took. <laughs> It, that captured my imagination, although I read almost nothing yeah. when I was in high school. Yeah. But that story captured my imagination. Every door we take yeah. 
is the lady or the tiger. Yeah, sometimes both. I guess so. I had to think about that. I, I, I hate blank air, but, you know, sometimes you, you hit me with something I have to think about. Sometimes both. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Oh, yes. Yeah. Again, that was episode 684 with William Friedkin, and you can listen to that full episode right now for free on whatever app you're using, and it's a doozy. It was amazing meeting the guy, and it was just one of those times where I was sitting in that old garage just listening to this amazing, brilliant, historic filmmaker just spin the yarn, man. What a raconteur. And it all kind of, it all kind of folds together and comes around. Crazy. Crazy. So go enjoy that if you'd like. Okay, so 24 years sober. Now, what did I do? I'll tell you what I did, and I'll be honest with you. I tried many times to get sober. The first time I got sober was 1988. 37 years ago was the first time I got sober and went to rehab. It took a while to get the hang of it. I would get a year there, year here, year and a half there. But in 99, it stuck because I was sweaty and uh, kind of, uh, in my mind, dying or at least putting myself at risk to be dead one way or the other. And I'd had enough. And uh, someone hit me to the program, which I was familiar with, but I was you know, resistant to. And I was the guy for years, maybe not years, in meetings who was like, this is bullshit. You people are losers. It's a fucking cult. Fuck this shit. And people would just come up to me, old timers, and say, you sound great. Keep coming back. And I used to go at the beginning because I was a, you know, I was a relatively younger comic. I wasn't, you know, uh, you know, famous in anyway. I didn't get a lot of work. I was in New York. I'd go to two or three meetings a day. I found a core group of dudes and ladies and, and men who were, you know, of my class. And we called each other. We did fellowship. We had coffee. We went to meetings together. Uh, I was in love with a, a woman uh, or so. I, I, I believe at that time it was love. It might have just been some... Some uh, somewhere on the spectrum of the of the illness that is the ism, but nonetheless, it was driving me to stay sober. That and just being sober, day counts mean something. It gets past a certain point where you're like, I don't want to lose my count. I got too much into this. There's an old saying in AA. It's not even an, uh, it's just something I heard. Don't kill yourself in the first five years of sobriety because you'd be killing the wrong person. But nonetheless. Uh, I wired my brain for the program. I wired it. I let my brain be wired. There's another saying I heard uh, when somebody said to an old timer, uh, I don't want to be, you know, AA is a cult and it brainwashes you. Yeah, well, your brain needs washing. In a lot of ways, AA taught me how not only to be sober, but, you know, how to take responsibility for uh, some of the uh, actions of my life and how to sort of have discipline around, um, uh, around not only sobriety, but just my life. Uh, it taught me how to see myself clearly. So what did I do? Well, I went to a lot of fucking meetings and uh, over the years, and but I'll be honest with you, last few years during COVID, I didn't like doing Zoom meetings. I didn't go much in person and I don't go to much. I don't go to many meetings, but I'm always in touch with sober people. I always have the conversations uh, that I need to have around sobriety and around... Um, whatever problems I'm having, 
in light of life that could possibly lead to drinking or using uh, with sober people at least weekly, if not twice a week. Many of my friends are sober. But I'll tell you what I did last week in New York, which really kind of uh, swelled my heart up, swelled my heart up and, you know, brought some, you know, grateful tears to my eyes. I think gratitude is something that I don't always pay attention to. But I'm fucking grateful for 24 years. I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful that, you know, I have this time now, these periods of reflection, where now I'm uh, once again looking back on my life and once again entering, you know, another fellowship, hopefully, to sort of, you know, assess, you know, other things that I have unresolved in my spirit, in my character, in my heart, in my soul, to try to, you know, I, I at some point, maybe a few years ago, I just said, well, fuck it, this is the way I am. I'm just going to have to deal with it. And, you know, this has to do with relationships, has to do with intimacy. It has to do with my, you know, my my life in relationship is not has not been great. And I just assumed I was just fucked up. And that's true. But maybe maybe there's help for me yet. But that aside, last week I was in New York City and I decided and it was sort of, you know, out of nowhere. It was interesting uh, a friend of mine reached out to me and said a friend of hers was struggling with alcohol and maybe there was something I could do. Maybe I could, you know, reach out to them, say something, uh, say hello, send a, a, a text or, or a recorded message to, to be supportive. And, and then I realized in that moment, it's like, well, this is what we do. This is what we do in program. You know, the hand of AA should always be there if somebody is in need or struggling and needs help. So I reached out to this person and I took them to a meeting in New York. I took them to one of the meetings that I got sober at in New York City. I got sober in New York City and there's plenty of fucking meetings uh, in New York City. And there's actually usually plenty of fucking meetings in, in most cities. You just have to look it up. Google AA and then put your town or city there and see what comes up. And just, you know, if you feel like you need to go see, all you got to do is sit there. And again, there are some people that don't believe I should talk about this, but I'm talking about it because, look, it doesn't work for everybody. There's other ways to get sober. You may not need it, but it's there, and it's been there for years, and it might just wake you up to something. You might hear something you might need to hear. You might learn something, or you might be in. It might change your fucking life. So I brought this guy to uh, uh, one of the meetings I got sober at, and I thought it was going to be a big old meeting, but I guess those days are gone for that meeting, and you know, meetings shift and ebb and flow and change so as me and him a guy who's never been to a meeting before and like eight people and it was great you know i heard what i needed to hear the 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 guy i brought heard what he needed to hear it kind of landed and and it was great it was exactly what the fellowship and what the program's supposed to be afterwards we had some dinner and we talked about all the things that you can talk about with somebody who who wants to get sober badly and also somebody who's, uh, you know, you know, within the, uh, the sort of world of, uh, of talking about personal stuff with somebody in AA. And it just, it, it filled me up with what got me sober and it reengaged me with the program again. And this is at 24 years and that was last week. And I feel sort of born again, AA in a way. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I hope that guy gets it. I hope anyone that needs it gets it. So anyways, I do talk about this publicly for reason to, to let people know that, you know, I have 24 years sober. I've been through a lot in my sobriety. 
Uh, I've, I've made mistakes in my sobriety. I've acted badly in my sobriety. I have experienced loss. I've been through two marriages in my sobriety. I've, uh, uh, I've lost a partner to, uh, to death in my sobriety. Uh, I've gone broke in my sobriety. But somehow or another, you know, having a drink or doing drugs in light of any of those things was not a solution. Now, granted, I drink a lot of coffee. Right now, I'm, 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 I'm on the nicotine lozenges. But neither one of those things are going to make my life unmanageable. It's a little annoying, but it does remind me that I'm a fucking addict. But it doesn't make my life unmanageable. And, and that is the deciding factor. If what you're doing, whatever it may be, whether it's food, drugs, alcohol, gambling, uh, sex, whatever it is that you're compulsively engaged with, if it's something that you've tried to stop but can't, you might need help. And there's a context out there. There is a context, and that context is the program. And uh, if anything, it may, may be able to get you a reprieve. It might be able to get you to you know, think about and believe that th there, there's another way and that uh, maybe through the idea of accepting powerlessness in the face of your addiction, that that might be a way to go. Again, there's many other ways to go uh, and there's, everyone's got free will and free choice even within the program, but uh, just know it's there and know it's possible. I hope this was helpful and I hope it was worth it to me to open myself up to, uh, to be schooled by old timers about the nature of the program and why it should be kept a big secret. Okay, I'll take that. So Adam Conover, as I mentioned before, is on the negotiating committee for the Writers Guild of America. He's uh, he has a podcast called Factually with Adam Conover, and you can get that wherever you get podcasts. Also follow him on social media for daily strike updates. This was recorded on July 27th. Since then, the WGA met with the AMPTP last Friday, but they couldn't come to terms for negotiations to resume, so nothing's really changed. Uh, this is my conversation with Adam Conover. <laughs> How long you been off uh, the booze? I quit. Um, let's see, twenty eight, early twenty eighteen. So five years. Five years. Mm -hmm. White knuckle. Or are you doing the thing? I kind of quit it the same way I quit smoking, which was I just <laughs> like I was yeah. like I don't need this in my life anymore, and I just kind of stopped, and I yeah. had to get over withdrawal period. Yeah, I've never been to a meeting or anything. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I've, that was my relationship with addiction. I, at some point I was like, oh, I'm addicted to this the way I was addicted to cigarettes and it's not sure. helping me and I need to. So, and, and now I, I don't even really think about it anymore. Well, that's good. I mean, it, it, then maybe you're, uh, maybe you're, um, dumping all that compulsive energy into good things <laughs> Hopefully. and eventually you'll hit the wall and go like, Jesus, fuck, I'm working too much. Hopefully. Yeah. And then, and then you'll be like, who am I? <laughs> <laughs> I mean that I, honestly that is what I do. I'm now at a compulsive work stage of my sure. of my life and career and yeah. and I that's like a thing I have to manage now. I've also started sm in just in the last couple of years I started smoking weed more regularly. Oh, that's cheating. <laughs> I agree with people who feel that way, but now I'm doing that often enough where I'm like I can feel a little bit of a dependence and it's not hurting me yet, but I get a little bit of the craving and I'm like maybe eventually I'm going to have to do the same thing. And oh, so you're not this. Oh, see like I know from 
my addiction that if I do anything addictive that it, my brain very quickly will uh, decide, why aren't we doing this every day? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and, and all day long. I mean, what, what is, uh, what's the holdup? That's basically, I do the same thing, but maybe to a, to a lesser degree. Like I, as a drinker, I was never a, um, I was never a blackout drinker. I was never someone who would people would be like, you have a problem. Right. I was just have two to three, actually four to five yeah. drinks a night, every night for like 15 years to help me go to sleep kind of thing. Sure. And sure. Uh, so when you decide to go to sleep, do you, do you clean up the bottles or you just walk away from the table? <laughs> I would have, you know, some, sometimes you're like, yeah. I need, I just need a little are bit you, of whiskey. Are you getting off the couch to sleep for the evening? <laughs> <laughs> or are you like, you know what, fuck it, I'm not going to just sleep on the couch. Well, now I now I sleep better. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I The crazy thing about quitting drinking was I thought for years I needed it to help me sleep. And then the day that I quit, I was like, oh, you wait, sleep? now I'm sleeping through the night. Yeah, that's the problem. You wake up, your body's sort of like, why aren't we drinking? Exactly. Yeah. And you're consuming all this like sugar, alcohol, totally. calorie yeah, right yeah, before yeah. sleeping, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was off, you know, I've been sober a long time without drugs or anything, but I was yeah. off, I've been off cigarettes for years. And then I was off, you know, I was on these for like a decade, nicotine lozenges. Mm. And then I got off everything for a few years, and then I smoked like two or three cigars. And I knew when I was doing it, I'm like, dude, it, you're going to be on your porch sweating every yeah. day getting nauseous with cigars by yourself. Yeah. And sure enough, then uh, within six months, I couldn't breathe. Now I'm back on these fucking things all day long. Well, there's a progression from doing something once going, this is fun, going, hey, why don't I do this all the time? But once you're, <laughs> once you're old and you're an addict, yeah. that progress, there's no progression. Yeah, it's, it's right a, away. It's two days, you yeah. know, and, but you know what, it's, it's yeah. okay. We're okay. You seem healthy enough. I try to, I try to keep an eye on what's serving me and what isn't. And some, sometimes with weed, I'm like, actually, it's not serving me today. I didn't need to, yeah. I didn't need to, I just, now I feel a little anxious and I feel bad. I didn't have fun. Yeah. And then sometimes, yeah. you know, me and my girlfriend will, will, We'll drink a weed tea or something, yeah, yeah. And like really space out and See, have a we nice didn't time have together. You know? All these variants, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, there wasn't like you know a spectrum of of impact of particular weeds, right. which right. they apparently have. And there's yeah. a lot of delivery systems, and yeah. uh, you can sort of manage it. Yeah. But I still believe that uh, you know most people are just getting fucking high. Yes. All day long. Yes. I don't believe in microdosing <laughs> and things like that. I think it's kind of. I think it's kind of <laughs> yeah, bullshit. People. A, I'm doing a bit about it. The whole thing kind of. Uh, that's. Uh, oh yeah. Took a while to 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 get it to land correctly, but it's pretty funny. It's it's just about the you know, because I know guys that have. I've been sober almost 24 years and. There are guys with long-term sobriety who get prescriptions for weed, uh -huh. but they know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the premise of the bit is really just sort of like, but it doesn't mean I don't think about going to one of these doctors. I mean, how does it work? You walk in and they're like, so what are you, depressed? And I'm like, yeah, I guess a little. And they say, well, you know, they've done a lot of studies and they find a, a very effective treatment for depression is just getting really fucking high. <laughs> and I kind of, kind of build it out from there. Yeah, I actually, my uh, hour I'm working on right now is about my childhood diagnosis with ADD and that whole struggle and, and Adderall. And, and you know, I, I took Adderall for many years, which is amphetamines. Sure. And I took it for uh, 10, 12 years. Um, and then I I realized I was just addicted to it. And, and that was what started me drinking was I needed a drink to go to sleep. Balance the Adderall? Yep, exactly. It was like up, down, up. Up, down, up, so down. So you'd been taking Adderall since you were a kid? Uh, I took Ritalin when I was in high school. I took really? Adderall when I was in college. Yeah. And then I took it through my mid-20s. But you were you were taking the prescribed dose. 
Uh, yeah, but I wasn't always taking it the prescribed way, <laughs> you know, oh, like, right, right. cause you can, might as well snort this shit. You can snort that shit. <laughs> I, I, and, and you know, in college, you know, you're experimenting. Yeah, well, I got sure. this pill. You're I got snorting this. that and you're giving your friends some, come on, everybody. Exactly. Yeah, I get exactly. It. And now I have friends. The, jo- the joke is that I have friends who are like, I just got diagnosed with ADD and I tried Adderall. It makes me feel great. I'm like, yeah, cause it's speed. Like speed makes <laughs> yeah. everybody yeah. feel great. Whether great you have drug. ADD or not. I have a lot of friends who really need it and benefit from it. But for me, at the end of the day, I was like, this is making me, this is, get, it's just get, get making me a, feel oh, yeah. speedy, right? Yeah, but you know, it does, it, it, you do, your brain does get kind of used to the, the juice. But you see, yep. I, but I think if you have, but if you have ADHD, aren't you pretty jacked anyways? Uh, jacked in some way. I mean, you can. You, or is it ADD? What's the difference? I, I say ADD because that's what it was called when, when I you was were diagnosed. Kid. Now you're, they you're added the school. H. You're yeah. old school. I'm an ADD OG. So know. what? how does that manifest itself? You can't concentrate on on something singular for very long? Yeah, I'm kind of, it's hard for me to do one thing for long periods of time. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of trouble. I have a lot of trouble writing, and that's my job, and so I, I like it's a constant struggle there. Yeah, um, you know, there's certain things I can lock into. I can like play a video game for a long period of time. But, but it like seems that. the way you structure uh, the shows that you're doing now, and your way of uh, of kind of staging the explanations of mm. of fairly sometimes basic civics, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, that there 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 does seem to be an, an ADD element. Because you yeah. j- you do jump around, yep. like it's a very kind of quick cut staging yep. to create visual metaphors for things, yep. so morons can understand it. Especially in the beginning, it was like on Adam ruins everything when we, especially when we started as a web series. It was like throw everything at it. There has to be a joke or an image or a move at every moment to hold the audience's attention. Yeah, and I realized eventually, I, I at some point, five years into it, I was like, oh, I was recreating the kids' TV that I used to watch when I was a kid. Right, um, stuff like Beekman's World of Bill Nye the Science Guy. And I only realized I was doing that once kids started watching the show. Like right. I, I, our show came on at ten thirty, and I was like, "This is a show. This is a daily show crowd." That's right. what I thought I was appealing to. And then people started, you know, tw- Twitter adding me photos of their seven year olds watching the show, and I was like, "Holy, holy!" Yeah, shit. it's like uh, it's like um, that thing from the electric company. You know, well, I'm only a bill. What yeah. Was that? Uh, Schoolhouse Rock is that yep. what that was? That that's that's a big touchstone for for what we ended up doing as well. But and, but it's uh, interesting yeah. to me is that. You know, like, I don't, like, I have to assume, and I say this a lot, you know, I didn't get a great education uh, (laughs) in high school because I wasn't paying attention. I didn't have ADHD. I don't know what I was doing, but I was not paying attention. And I did not have a sense of basic civics until I got a job at Air America. I showed up at my job at Air America as as an on-air personality with a Democracy for Dummies book. <laughs> for, for real? For real. Wow. Because I needed to get up to speed. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny about government and about, you know, sort of being in the world of not reporting on government, but in the ebbs and flows of government yeah. that you can pick up on it. But there there's... Sort of, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, and, and is it can get pretty deep. To, yeah. to, to to be wonky about it, it, yeah. it, there's a lot of process involved. That I don't think everybody knows, but I really it took me a long time to to just get the basic fucking civics. Yeah, I, I mean, 
it, what's funny is that we're my we're point not, was adults probably watch your show. They they do thankfully. I mean, well, the, the thing that makes me happiest is that people will come to when I do stand up and and like a whole family will come and they'll be like, oh, we watch your show together. Like uh, like the kids want to take a photo, but not with the parents. Right. And the parents come oh, really? up afterwards and they're like they're like we watch the show together. So these are relatively progressive parents who are concerned yeah. that their kids. <laughs> aren't getting, you know, an education that they understand to make them, uh, you know, practical and responsible uh, citizens. Yeah, sometimes. But then sometimes I hear from kids who are like, my conservative dad likes your show because he likes that you call out the bullshit. Oh, okay. I get that sometimes. Yeah. It's not my, the core yeah. of my My conservative but... dad who's full of bullshit yeah. likes it. You... <laughs> well, you know, there's people who are- Old who, school. Who, uh, and maybe if they had grown up in a different city, they would have been, they would have come out a different way. But they have the gene to, you know, hate being lied to and to like look under things. Right. Well, and, they think, you know. well, it, it's absolutely a, a sort of uh, hijacking of a pursuit of truth and justice that is causing a tremendous amount of problems because of the nature of information. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, most of those people, they think like, you know, everyone else is a dupe and they've got the real information <laughs> yeah. and they're talking about QAnon. Yeah. Well, well the thing is, everybody loves to have the surface peeled away and to look at the scaffolding underneath if you tell people this is why things are the way that you're mad about this in your life here's why it is this way everybody wants to know that it's like an appealing story they also often are not educated about how you actually make change and what you can do with actual power like growing power is a hard thing to do it is possible if you like really study power and how it works and why things are the way they are and you can find your leverage points to you know fucking move the boulder um, but a lot of people who are elected to office they, they don't even see that as their job they're just like hey yeah I mean I'm just here to be part of the system you know or, or, or worse to be you know to to talk about myself and to align my and to keep getting yes. elected so I can never shut up yes but like, but what gave me hope about sort of what you're trying to do, and, and I think that on some level, what John Stewart's trying to do now, yeah, uh, is to try to reengage people in you know civic responsibility yep. along the lines of like what what can policy and what can representation you do to actually elevate the quality of life and, and equality in America, right? Yep. The idea of democracy, which is, you know, dramatically threatened yeah. right now. I, I mean, we're told by everybody that there's only three ways to make change in the country. It's to vote, it's to talk on social media, yeah. and it's to do something with money. It's to buy something or donate. And those, in fact, voting is quite good. Everyone should vote. I do all three of those, so I'm doing yeah. good. Though, or is there one I'm missing? Voting is good. <laughs> voting is the minimum, right? Yeah, yeah. The other two are are bullshit. The other two are, oh, you know, very very little that you can that you can do by doing those things. But there are, you know, the the way to actually make change is to participate, as to is to build the power yourself, is to organize. Do we got to go downtown and you know hang out at the meetings? <laughs> Are you yeah. talking like, you know, get, do I have to go to the Glendale town halls to decide whether or not we can have fences? I mean, that's that's its own can of worms because a lot of the meetings that you as the public can go to are specifically structured to almost be honeypots for the public to come and yell at that have no power. So like here in LA, there's these things called neighborhood councils that the yeah. city have put together. Yeah. There's one for, well, you're, you're in Glendale, but yeah. you know, um, I bet Glendale has, has an equivalent where it's like, you know, there's some, uh, there's some uh, elected, very local people, you know, literally just someone from their neighborhood gets, you know, a hundred people 
vote for them and they sit on this board. And the whole point of this board is for angry people to go yell at them and they go, I'm so, how could you do this? Yeah. The boards, the neighborhood councils have no power. Right. They can't even get the attention of right. the people who actually run the city. It's designed to let them blow off steam. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, so they're futile and useless. That particular body is yeah. right. Um, that that particular because of the way that it's structured. So now, all your 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 sort of life's work at this point. <laughs> uh, what did you where where did you grow up? <laughs> I love. Let's 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 start at the beginning. And get all the way to life's work. Uh, I grew up on Long Island. Oh really? In New York, what, yeah. what town? A town called town called Wading River was where I spent most of my life growing up. It's in Suffolk County. It's almost like farm country. Yeah. It's like not not the city sprawl, but not the rich people yet. There's yeah. like a sort of couple hundred miles in between. Okay. Yeah. And and your your folks are academics? Yeah. My uh my dad was a marine biologist at SUNY Stony Brook. My mom has a PhD in uh, botany. She ran a, a museum, a small science museum, and was a teacher. Um, yeah. So what is that, you know, what is, what's the tone of your, your childhood? <laughs> I mean, so are you, you taught yeah. to be curious and engaged? Are you going out on boats? Are you learning about flowers? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, my parents brought me up with a, you know, with a science education upbringing, a lot of PBS in the house, yeah. a lot of NPR in the house, a lot of, um, you know, uh, nonfiction books and magazines lying around and stuff like that. Oh, um, a, a probably, yeah, a bunch. Nature yeah. books. Yep, yep. My and, sister now is a science journalist, so I'm the only one who's not in the family. There's this there's you and your sister? Uh, just me and my sister, yeah. But, like, was that, were your parents activists? Hmm, good question. Uh, I mean, look, they, they grew up in the 60s. I remember my mom telling me, I used to go to protests and stuff like that, but not, uh, yeah, not, not in an intense way, but they were involved. You but know? around, like, you know, issues revolving around pollution or, or, mm -hmm. or, or yep. eco-death. Yep, they were, they were, they, they, I was aware of those things from a young age, you know, and they were, like, involved in their community in a big way, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, they uh, ran, like, they used, uh, one of my earliest memories was they used to, uh, have you ever heard of contra dancing? It's a form of folk dancing that was uh -huh. popular in the, at least in this part of the country in the early 80s. They used to like put on these big like uh, contra dances people would, uh, uh, it's like a form of dancing where people are constantly swapping partners. And, okay. Um, uh, fiddle music, banjo, okay. guitar, yeah. stuff like that. So like, yeah. these big sort of like, almost like 19th century feeling sort of community events, right? Okay. And so that was the sort of, you know, some of my earliest memories are like being, uh, like, you know, being at these uh, events where my mom's like calling out dance moves and my dad's playing the guitar and they're like leading a band and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Oh, they, so, they, they very were, folky. This is my point that they were, uh, my point that I'm making. They were, they were folkies. But it's funny, even that, like, you know, when I think about it, when I think about the lack of sort of, uh, you know, real community bonding, you know, when I think of, yeah. you know, a, a group dancing, like, I mean, you can go to a club or you can go to a concert, <laughs> but this idea that everyone's engaging in a, in a very specific type of in, of dancing yep, yep. And, a, and a type of dancing with called steps where like you square dancing almost. it's it's a square dancing that type of dance yeah. um and it's very athletic people yeah. move very quickly it's there's a lot of like social rules that, for sure. not being too rude to other people who you're doing it with um you know you'll, you'll often have a partner but then switch partners periodically throughout the yeah. dance and it wrote and the the sort of point is to engage in this like mass synchronized activity but you're learning it as you go because they'll call a dance right yeah. it's like and now do si do and now alaman left alaman right swing your partner sure. etc and you're responding to that so you're learning the first yes. round yes. and then the second and third round you're like yeah uh doing it faster and faster until suddenly you're all doing this synchronized movement together yeah that you've all everyone has to participate and learn it's a at proactive once. mass synchronized 
movement. <laughs> this is a pretty, I, I was wondering why I brought this up. Yeah. And then it actually matches very closely with the conversation about civics and, and how we make change and like organizing. Cause yeah. it's a form of, uh, it's a form of self-organizing. So what, uh, what drove you away from science? <laughs> I think it might've been the ADD. Uh, In retrospect, you, you, well, you actually, lean on that. <laughs> I used to think that. And then I have recently thought that maybe my, Mom and dad both had undiagnosed ADD, and uh, I thought that thought that about my mom for a while, but now I kind of think it of uh, of my dad in that he uh, he was like always very type A focused guy, yeah, um, and he was like the kind of dad where if you talk if you said something to him and he was thinking about work he wouldn't answer you for like forty five seconds until right. he like finished processing you uh, know and that, th and then it would come out of his mouth you know it was like your whatever you said went into a queue and it had to like get all the way through. Now I relate to it. Now that I'm in my, you know, 40s, uh, around the age that he was then, yeah. I will, I, there have been times that I've been so stressed out about whatever show I'm making or whatever sure. that, like, I literally cannot be present in the moment. My girlfriend will say something to me and it doesn't, it doesn't go right, in. Right. And so I think maybe, I, I haven't even talked to him about this, but maybe he was pushing himself, he was overcompensating for that, right? Yeah. I, I think of it as- Is he still around? He is, yeah. yeah and he's yeah. still working or no? No, he retired, and it's been the most wonderful thing because he was so just, you know, so focused on work and so stressed out all the time. And when he retired, it was like this gigantic weight came off his shoulders. Yeah. He became a different person. He became so much easier to talk to. Like, now we have conversations that we never had. Now we enjoy each other's company. I, A lot of people my age had this experience where I was like, oh, now I'm like friends with my dad, where right. I wasn't before. That's nice. Um, did, did yeah. he, what did he say about that submarine? About the, oh, the Titan submarine? He was, well, he was a marine biologist, so I don't I know, know but if he, he knew But I mean, but still, like, they'd go he's, down he's, in cans occasionally, wouldn't they? <laughs> Not the kind of, no. he, he studied fish populations off the coast of Long Island. Oh, okay. So it was yeah. more of a fisherman type of, oh, okay. he was on the boat kind of guy. Okay, yeah. Um, I didn't ask him about the about the Titan sub, although I think he, yeah. I'm sure he was sad about it. <laughs> he was probably bummed out. <laughs> but he wasn't a deep marine biologist. No, 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 no. People are always like, oh, is dolphins? No, no, is a yeah. fish called the Atlantic silverside, a small silverside. Silverfish in Long Island. That's what, what he, that's what his wife's work was. Yeah. He he was on the cover of uh, this magazine called Nature, which is one of the most significant. Yeah. Ma I like, remember that. Yeah, from waiting rooms and stuff. Yeah, a very uh, the, one of the most important scientific journals. He was on the cover of it. Had a a, a study on the cover of it when he was in his probably late twenties, early thirties, like right out of like his PhD thesis yeah. was on it. Yeah, and so he had this like for a marine biologist, rocket to fame moment. Then he became a college professor at a university. He was on a tenure track, very young. Yeah. And he was like overwhelmed by the amount of work and the expectation, you know uh, what I Of mean? a professorship. That's what I now realize. Oh, is, yeah. And, and that's what I relate to because I went from being, uh, you know, I was a staff writer at a website making- Which website? Know, college Humor was the oh, website yeah, yeah. I was at. I remember, yeah. Um, making, making videos, and then I went from that to show running a television show, you know, uh, that was starring me. Yeah, now your mom is uh, still a botanist? Uh, yeah, uh, no, she, she was a, uh, well, she's retired as well. Oh. Um, she has a PhD in botany and then she, uh, became a, uh, she ran a, a small science museum in our, in the town that we grew up. Oh, that's in, nice. Yeah, for for the years. kids? For the kids. And she, there were exhibits and Educators. I would run around it. Yeah. That she was an educator. Yeah. So where does this, like, so what do you go to school for? What, how do you push back and say, <laughs> fuck you, I'm doing this? I got a BA in philosophy. That's what I studied. I went to a liberal arts college. Um, and, Which one? Uh, 
Bard College. I've heard of that. Is that but is that fancy? What's the reputation of that place? Uh, expensive hippie school, oh, but, that's right. but pretty. Oh, so it's like the it's like yeah. the East Coast Reed. It is literally the East Coast Reed. Is yeah. what it is. It's very good education. Very serious education. But you kind of choose your thing. You can choose your thing. <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah. It was the perfect. It was the perfect spot for me. It was like the first time I felt like seen as a person was when I went to that school. And philosophy. Yeah. What do you remember about that? What was your big breakthrough with philosophy? Which one? <laughs> Who was your guy? Where you were like, this dude. There was a guy named, uh, he's still alive. His name is Daniel Dennett. He's a, a cognitive philosopher um, who wrote a lot about the the mind and the nature of consciousness. I was under the nature of consciousness. Like what, this is a basic philosophical question. Like what is this? Right, yeah, sure. Other things aren't conscious. I am, why? What does it mean to be a conscious right, thing? Right, right. And so he was a, a philosopher who wrote a lot about that with the, uh, uh, from a perspective of cognitive psychology um, where oh, that's he, interesting. he believed so consciousness. So you didn't fuck with the, are we exist or do we not exist or existentialism. You went with a more practical thing. Existentialism was a little too, those, those guys are a little too poetic for me mm. for the most part. But I got, you know, I was into Descartes and everything. I mean, yeah. the fun thing about philosophy is it's just the stuff that you, you get to actually try to answer the questions that keep you up at night when you're 13 years old of like, why is my, why is my awareness in this body as opposed to any other? Like what, yeah. what is the explanation for, if there's many minds, why yeah. am I this mind and not sure. another mind? You know? Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I think about that all the time because of the nature of, you know, uh, random DMs. Uh, it's sort of like, oh my God, there's m <laughs> billion people on this planet and everyone's got their own sense of what they think is, you know, <laughs> right or who they are. Like it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And now because everything is so decentralized, it's like everyone's their own little bubble of self. Yeah. And it's just like, it's overwhelming and terrifying. Some, do you ever have this experience? Like I, I sometimes look at my girlfriend, we'll, we'll be like hanging out yeah. and I'll look at her and I'll go like. Are you like a person in there? Like you, you have yeah, a yeah, yeah, mind, yeah. and she's like, "Yeah, are you?" And I'm like, "Uh huh." And then we just like trip out on the. We're not high when we do this. Yeah. We like trip out on sure? <laughs> the, <laughs> the consciousness, the the like weird, you know. Yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah, of consciousness. Well, right. It's sort of like you know, is my personality just a template over something vague? Yeah. You know, what is self? <laughs> Right. Talk about Joe Rogan. Is this where we're going? Is this that <laughs> turning into that kind of podcast? Does he do that? <laughs> I mean, it's mostly about like I don't know mushrooms and great apes and things. But, sure, yeah. and 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 meat, right? Yeah, and meat, and but and and why uh, why uh, libertarianism, as as best they can understand it, is <laughs> is not right wing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, but like I, I, what's the guy's name? Tenet. Dennett, Daniel Dennett. Dennett, yeah. So he's the one that kind of blew your mind? He he did blow my mind, yeah. I, I mean, he had this idea that, like, anything that operates the same way a human brain does is conscious in a lesser way. So he's so his one of his arguments is that, like, your thermostat is in some sense conscious. Oh, like, so this brings us right to uh, what the writers are demanding. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder. It's full circle. It's full you're circle. like, we're running out of time, and no, no. fuck the segue. No, no. <laughs> no, you're describing AI. You are oh, describing of course, of course. The yes, highest. Yes, yes, yes. This is the highest level yes. of, of this. This has evolved you know, consciousness mm -hmm. to a, as much as it can be on technical, mm -hmm. technological basis. Mm -hmm. And it is what you're confronting. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, you, you were kind of primed for this by your guy, uh, Dennett. This is, wow, you're drawing connections I never even thought to make about my own life. 
Oh, good. That sort of happens here sometimes. We don't have to get there just yet. But like, where yeah. does where does stand up come into it? So I was uh, when I was in college, I was like, I was like, I, I wanted to go to grad school, and nobody was like. You should. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I, I had a sense that it wasn't going to be my path. At the, around the same time, a friend of mine started a comedy group. Yeah. Uh, we, we had a sketch comedy group for a number of years. And I had a sense that, uh, you know, oh, I can sort of do philosophy via comedy in some way. I can do some of the same stuff that I'm interested in in philosophy through comedy. Um, I was in a sketch group for a couple of years that we had a bunch of success on the early internet. Sketch group eventually broke up. Yeah. And I realized that I just loved the feeling of getting the laughs more yeah. than the other guys in the group had. I was like, I want to keep doing the monthly show we did at UCB and get laughs from people, you know, in a right. basement. Yeah. And in uh, New York. Yep. In New York. And the group had broken up. And I was like, the only way to do that is to do stand up. The only way to get more of this feeling is to go through what I knew would be the hell of, of trying to trying to get good at stand up or trying to do it at all. And mm -hmm. so I just started I started going to open mics, you know, and I just uh in New York. Uh, in New York, yep. And how'd that go for you? Uh, it went, I mean, it went as well as it can. I am now able to make a living as a stand-up comedian, so I'm happy about that. It was, But the primary you know, living is through doing these shows, right? Well, really? uh, what's funny is that I did the did the shows after working at College Humor, and we, you know, we sold the first show. I did that for a number of years. Which was Adam Ruins that Everything. That was Adam Ruins Everything, yep. Did that for about five years. Was lucky enough to sell another show after that to Netflix called The G Word that you alluded to about the yeah. government. Um, and I was always doing stand-up during that time, but my living was coming from the shows. After the Netflix show ended and, you know, we... Uh, uh, I, I The last two years have been the first time that I have made a living purely as a comic, also making YouTube videos and a podcast. Yeah. But that's been like incredibly rewarding to me because I'm like, okay, I find I, I actually for the first time am like I I am a I I, I am a uh, making a living as a stand up comic. Well it's like you you came around the side like you know I'm yes. sort of this lifer that comes from another generation. So because of the nature of of the platforms that evolved after I started People know you when they come, and they don't know you from stand-up necessarily. Yeah. They know you, and they understand your point of view. Yep. So there's probably a, a certain amount of people that are like, I didn't know he did stand-up. Exactly. People come to my shows, and they say that. Right. And, and I'm gratified that people are starting to know me more that way, and I'm, I'm hopefully going to you know, tape an hour later this year and, yeah. and you know, self-release it most likely, just so that people can see that and can see that that's something that I do. Because yeah. for me, it's just always been my kind of first love in comedy. And, uh, you know, the thing that I, 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 I don't know, there's something that draws you back to it. You just want to make people laugh that way. Even though it's not, it's not the easiest way to make people laugh. It's not the way to make the most money making people laugh, but it's somehow the most rewarding just to Well, yeah, because be it's, it's happening now. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's it's, that's, it's, that's it. Yeah. It's good for ADD. Yeah. yeah this is I'm, this is happening now. That's what I like. I also took improv classes. I could never get very good at improv because I, I hated being. I hated having to think on my feet as another person. Uh -huh. Um. To to oh, a character. Playing, a yeah. Character. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. Well, not unlike. Myself, your your most of your energy just goes on to holding on to you. Yes. So why risk it? Yes. And, and what I so what I like is in stand up yeah. going like, isn't this a weird room? Yes. Like what the hell? That's my favorite way to open a set. Is like, where the fuck are we? Yeah. What is this place? And oh, then interesting. The, the audience laughs just because you're having a common experience in that moment that no one in that room could even understand. But you don't take it to sort of like a structural analysis of the actual. <laughs> 
<laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. I happen to have the plans, the architectural plans of this one. <laughs> I mean, I like to do the thing where I, I break down stand-up comedy a little bit and talk about, isn't it weird that like my job is to make you make a sound? Yeah. A sound you could make anytime you want. If you yeah. just, but instead you want to come here, you want to make me make you we make sound? You want to be surprised by the sound. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole trick. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, sure, we can make that sound, but if it is it happening... For real? It's the difference between masturbation and sex, right? Yeah. Masturbation feels good, but for some reason, yeah. when you're like, it's that tension of someone else is doing it to you. Yeah, yeah. You don't know when the when it's going to finally yeah. happen. Sure, sure. That makes it feel sure. much better. I, that's interesting. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Uh, someone said to me, um, when you masturbate, your your primary sexual partner is you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh-huh. So, and and got, you know all your own tricks. Sure, and you can you have a lot of control. There's no reason you can't go for hours if you have <laughs> if you're that kind of person. Sure. <laughs> a porn addict. Sure. But uh but yeah, I, I think that's an okay analogy. So where like what did I watch on YouTube? Is that were you in Canada? Oh, in Canada. I don't know. Uh, oh, of stand up? Yeah. That was something that I recorded probably at, at Just for Laughs the first time I went. Oh. And uh, uh, I think they told me they weren't going to upload it. And then they oh. did it. And I'm yeah. like, this set's okay. Yeah. Oh, it was just so. a set, a short set? I think so. Am I wearing a green suit? Yeah. So, yeah. like, is this your first hour that you're working on? Now I am. Yeah. Well, actually, I've done hours before. Uh, I've done two other hours before that, but they were. Uh, a lot more like Adam ruins everything. I would use PowerPoint, you know, or a key, Apple oh, Keynote, yeah, sure, and I'd sure. have slides, and I would sort of write it like an episode of Adam ruins everything, and be like, "Here's my thesis statement, and I'm going to back it up with jokes," and, you know, that sort of writing. And audiences liked it; it was good, but I was somehow dissatisfied by it always because I was just like, "It's just not as fucking funny as I want it to be," and it's not, it's it, not exactly stand up. It's uh, yeah, and what I realized, I. It took me years to figure it out, but I wanted to strip all that other shit away that I was sort of, I realized I was using it to kind of protect myself, you yeah. know, like, oh, well, if I'm not that funny just as me, I've, I've have all this other edifice yes. that I've built and brought in. And also you know? most of w what you're talking about is outside of you. Exactly right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. you know, stand up, if, if it's the kind of stand up you want to do is self revelatory. Yes. Uh, or at least a good mix. Yeah. Whereas and, you're just sort of uh, doing a presentation about a thing. Exactly. And, yeah. And it's okay to give a presentation about a thing. Maybe I'll do stand-up about other topics like that in the future. I mean, people like, you know, Eddie Izzard, right? Incredibly funny doing yeah. stuff about history and et cetera. But Not I for think, me. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was being charitable. Also, not my uh, yeah. favorite thing in the world. But people enjoy it, right? It's fine. I think so. But, like, yeah, if you can kind of uh, do one of those riffs that compartmentalize a couple sure. thousand years, why not? There's plenty. There's a lot of observations to uh. make. But no, I think you're right that... I think one of the things I like about stand-up that I've only realized in the last couple of years, I've only consciously realized, is, you know, when you're watching a comic on stage, you see them, right? Like, they can try to put on a a, a, a persona or yeah. a mask yeah. or a face or try to put on something. But if, you know, I can watch a comic, I know exactly how long they've been doing stand-up. I know if they're nervous. I know if they're confident. I know if they're yeah. if they're original, right? You, I think you, so. You, I, you're I think looking at someone, you fucking see them. I and, think you should feel that. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that's always the case. Yeah. I think some people, you know, do comedy to avoid themselves. But once they get good at it, you're right. They, you can see what's in there somehow. I think that's the better of them. I think we... But I think there's some people that really just hide the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. But can you, you don't feel you can tell when they're hiding, when you're looking at them? Do you well, well, I think that, you know, uh, that being funny is innately some sort of defense, whether it's preemptive mm -hmm. or self-protecting. But I think the guys who really figure it out that learn to, I think what you're saying is true, that 
once a guy learns that there's a part of him that lives on stage, yeah. that that is uh, effectively a part of him. But, you know, a lot of times you're not really seeing the sadness or the fury or the anger mm-hmm. or, or their childhood, but you yeah. do get a sense of, of their heart if they're good. Yeah. yeah. I, I think my, my feeling is just there's, there's something about the medium uh, that strips people bare, yeah, right? It's yeah. just, you're getting, you're being perceived. Yeah, you're yeah. just being looked at, which yeah. is something attracts me to that. I've always wanted the attention, but I'm also terrified of it. And, yeah. and rather than try to build a defense against it, sure. it, I was finally better served when I said, you know what? It's just going to be me trying to make people laugh at the rate that I want. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, there you go. And there's something so, I don't know. Stand up, stand up writing is the hardest kind of writing to do because they have to laugh so often. You yeah, know? If that's what you want to do. Sure, you want to be a joke machine. Yeah, yeah, you figure it out. Well, there's an ex- there's a certain level of expectation, you know that, that the I think audience so. has. I, I I I think though that you know you have control of that. You know, yeah, that, it's more like masturbating than sex. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. If you're if you're really in your element. Yeah, but you know, I was I was watching um. The show Hacks, which I love. Yeah. Have you seen the show? Sure. Um, and you know, Jean, Jean Smart's wonderful in the yeah. show, but they have her doing stand up on it. And I was like, why? Why does it still not quite feel like stand up? Right? Like wh- when she's you, acting a, like a stand up because she's acting like a stand up, but it it's never also works. because no matter how good the writing, you know, like the, I know the writers of that show, they're wonderful writers, yeah. um, and they they probably feel, oh, we wrote something that sounds like yeah. stand up, but yeah. until you've done it in front of an audience, can't and tested, it, it yeah. can't, it, and it, you're reshooting things, and you know, yeah. it, it has to go through the fire and the flames. It's a very so. interesting thing about someone acting. Uh, uh, the role is a, a stand-up. You know, it's it's it never really works. I'm not. I think they they captured the life of the stand-up very well, and I think she does. Yeah as good a job as it has ever been done. Totally agree. But but it, it's hard, you know. You know, I've seen Hanks do it, you know, and then of course there's Dustin Hoffman as Lenny. But you're not you're not gonna you, you can't capture that like there's something I've noticed about old stand ups recently in watching Rickles and and Rodney a lot is that Stand-ups are flailing from the get-go, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, you know, it's just like, you know, you're at the edge of some sort of abyss. Yeah. And, and you got to, you know, you've got to stay out of it. Yeah. And you look at Rickles and you look at Rodney, they're drowning within seconds, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. you know, I don't know how you act that, yeah. you know, even in, cause I think it is somewhere in the core of stand-ups. Yep. Like, like, you know, as soon as you enter that stage, it's yep. like you're falling. Yeah. And everything else is artifice. You you pretend not to be afraid. Eventually, you get a certain amount of confidence that you're funny. Yeah. But but you know, I I it, I think it's hard to act. Yeah. And that's why my dream scenario, and no one would ever do this, but like would be to take someone like Gene Smart, who's a wonderful actor, who's playing a stand-up, yeah. and say, you actually have to go on the road and make people laugh. I think with she these probably jokes. did. You think so? Yeah, I think they did okay. that. I, I and you know, but it, it's still like one of those things, like it not. It's a craft unto itself. So, you know, you've been doing stand-up 20 years. Yeah. Like, there's, again, there's part of you that lives up there. Yeah. And you can't fake that. Yeah. So, like, that's what's going to be missing. Yeah, it's true. But uh, was there always something that bothered you about people's engagement with uh, um, the society and government and things like that? There was something that needed to shift? I think it came out of the... Uh, I think, it, for me, it came directly out of doing comedy. Yeah. Because... You know, for me, a lot of comedy is you notice something that's like wrong about the world. Yeah. And you, that's sure. the, where the comedy starts. Yes. Um, and then 
I started just having success on stage when I would tell those stories, tell something I had learned about why the world is wrong. And right. then like, hey, guess what? There's a better fucking way. Right. And we could do it. Right. And like, holy shit. And then I made a bunch of TV shows around that premise. Right. And then I started going, well, okay, if we know the better way, why aren't we doing it? And like trying to figure out then. How right. So uh, one of the big first ones for me was we did an episode about uh, about homelessness, um, about housing. Um, yeah. And the end of it is pretty straightforward. This was like six or seven years ago. Yeah. Um, but it was, hey, you know, if you want to help homeless people, give them fucking homes. Like it's called permanent supportive housing. Yeah. You, it's cheaper than letting people die on the street or go to the emergency room over and over again. Yeah. Cheaper just put them in an apartment and, you know, give them the support they need, right? Yeah. And help them get off of drugs or whatever they need to do once they're in the apartment. Yeah. But that's the cheaper way. Every study shows this. It's been tried in other countries. Great. And then I made the episode of television about it, and I was kind of like, great, case closed, we did it. Yeah. And then a couple months later, I was like, why is nobody doing this yet? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so then I met a... Uh you know, I met a candidate for a city council here in, in Los Angeles yeah. who was introduced to me by a friend of mine. She was like, yeah, I want to do that in L.A. Yeah. And I was like, oh, OK. Do you think you can win? And she was like, yeah, here's how I think I can win if I if you help out. And yeah. I was like, oh, all right, then I'll fucking help out. Yeah. And I like, started getting involved in city politics and, you know, et cetera. Uh, uh, on the housing level? Uh, housing, I've, I've been, um, you know, I, I volunteered for many years with a wonderful organization called CELA. We do homelessness outreach, um, in Los Angeles. Uh, and it's re really just basic, you know, street, street engagement, bringing people water, stuff yeah. like that. I've, I've been to a bunch of like, you know, I got involved in some of those neighborhood council meetings that I told you I eventually realized were kind of a honeypot for yeah. assholes to yell at. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I do, I do what I, I try to find, you know, the opportunities that I think have the highest leverage. And um, do you find that you're seeing uh, progress? Yeah. Uh, I, I do. I mean, I can't say that I'm seeing like societal progress, but I've seen progress on the things that I've worked on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's incredibly rewarding if you see a problem, see a way that you can make some progress on it. If, if we do X, Y, Z, we can actually make this happen. We could get this person elected. We could get this policy in place. And then you work your ass off and, and it actually happens, you know, yeah. you, you feel it's enormously rewarding because you're and like that's the way the system works. Not always, but it's no. The but way I mean, it can like, work. if you want to get involved, you have to uh, sacrifice uh, a certain. You have to engage a certain selflessness to to believe in what you're working towards with this policy, with this candidate, with yeah. people, with outreach, and 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 it's it's sort of thankless work in a way. Yeah, and and, and even if it succeeds and the policy passes or the candidate gets in place, then the real work begins. Yes. So like, I'm just sort of, you know, trying to wrap my brain around just the incredible lack of engagement and lack of a bench of decent uh, people who want to be involved in, in civic responsibility. Well, it's incredibly hard, you know, um, and there's a lot of forces arrayed against you doing it. Um, so look, uh, the, the the city council candidate I'm talking about is this is this wonderful woman, uh, Nithya Rahman. Uh -huh. um, uh, she ran in CD4 where I live. Yeah. Um, and the whole city council in L.A. was based around the idea of nobody knows we exist, you know, like nobody knew the name of the city council person there and he didn't do shit. Right. Yeah. Because he was one of the people who, as you said, was in it for himself. And, uh, you know, they sort of ran this sort of administration based on obscurity. Yeah. And she looked around and went, hold on a second. If I instead go to people and say, this is what 
there's a, there's something called a city council person. This is what they do. This is the power that they have. Aren't you dissatisfied um, that she could get elected and ran this campaign based on educating people around like actually there is something you can do right, right. about homelessness about all these other issues, and so I worked really hard to get her elected. She won, and now when there's uh, an unhoused person on my block, like I can you know, email her office and I know that what they do, they don't ignore them or send the cops. She has like a street team that she assembled of like a couple dozen people and they will go send someone out to that corner yeah. and personally find not temporary housing for that person, but permanent housing for that person. And there's not enough housing in the country or sorry, in the county. And so, you know, that's, it's, it's, you know, it's making a little dent, but I'm like, that wouldn't be happening if it weren't for this person being in office. And that's like incredibly. And most people work. just sort of go like, well, just call the cops. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's it's out of control. Yeah. That's what, and, you know, that's the approach that yeah, the LA city fucking, has been taking forever. Yeah, yeah. Fucking Dems. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, California is a shithole or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, all that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. That's the, that's the approach that most people take. And is this what sort of compels you into being active in in the union, the writers union, WGA. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I got sucked in step by step because um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. this guy, this guy talks good. <laughs> That's pretty much he's what not, it is. He's not like one of these like weird closet, weird uh, nerdy writers. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, we've got you know. Here, here's what here's what ended up happening. We yeah. had um, uh, a couple years ago, uh, we we had a big dispute with our agents because our agents were being paid by the people who. You know, we want them to negotiate with us for, you for know? with by the streamers by by uh, they they had I don't want to get too deep into the contractual yeah. details, but the the agents had worked out this uh, system where they got a percentage of the show budget rather than our commission uh, right? through so packaging through packaging right? right so they're being paid by uh, basically you know the agents are the people that we bring on to negotiate our salary but they're yeah. being paid by our bosses not by us clear conflict of interest we were right. trying to eliminate that and so because uh, they're corporate entities too depending on the agency exactly right and yeah. they've, they're big and bigger they're buying each other they're merging yeah. they've got private equity money yeah you know they're because and and so they're you know no longer treating us like their clients they're treating us like you know like we work for them like we're in their warehouse sure. and they're they're selling us yeah right? yeah so we so the writers guild had a plan to renegotiate our contract with the agencies it was going to take a lot of work and a lot of organization yeah. i was in favor of it it was a little bit controversial in the in the union um we had these big meetings about it we had these big like union-wide meetings, you'd have a thousand writers in a room. And I realized if I went to the meeting and I, the, the, the people give a presentation and they would say, now there's an open mic. Anyone can get up and ask a question. Yeah. Right? And I was like, oh, if I just sit near the microphone mm. and stand up first and give my own little speech, I can speak to like a third of the membership at once. Yeah. Right. If I say, here's why I think we should do this. And uh, it it was extremely. It felt extremely powerful to do it. I did that at every single meeting I could, and then eventually people started coming. Hey, why don't you come to like the? Why, why don't you run for something? You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. here I am now, like my full time job. You know, five years later, yeah. my full time job is basically currently yeah. uh, uh, being a part of this this strike that we're undergoing. Yeah. yeah. I, for some reason, when you said a thousand writers in a room, I kept thinking of that joke about the thousand monkeys with typewriters. It's <laughs> about right. <laughs> would eventually except, create the work. Except all the monkeys think that they're smarter than all the other. Yeah. yeah, and they already read Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, so your job is what? So I'm now on. 
the Writers Guild of America West Board of Directors, and I'm on our negotiating committee. Um, uh, so I've been. So you're 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 at the front I'm, line. I'm in the middle of it. Yeah, I was in the room with the AMPTP, and now I'm on the picket line almost every day. Uh, you know, and I'm a I'm a leader. I I uh, you know people come to me they when they need stuff. I talk to the press. I you know am just always talking to the other folks in the leadership group and helping so, make the thing happen. So let's let's break it down a little bit because yeah. before the actors got involved. Yeah. Because once the actors got involved, you know, there you know, there's a different type of momentum here. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they they are really sort of hobbling the industry now. Yeah. Like, you know, there is this feeling of real kind of union power. Uh, but we're still up against these monolithic fucks. Yeah. So what was the initial issues, you know, when the writers be- began to sh- strike? Because yeah. Like my sense of it after doing some reading is that the model that the studios took on or they weren't studios that once the streamers got into the business of studios, yeah, that they used a a sort of uh, a tech model uh, for growth. Yep. And uh, and that it, in, in and of itself relied on lying about numbers or not disclosing numbers, mm-hmm. which shut us out, writers and actors, from any sort of residual protection or back-end deal or anything. And then those contracts began to be negotiated like that. They, yeah. Like, here's your pay, you know, maybe if it ends up, you know, on something other than our streamer or in another place, you'll get a few bucks. Yeah. And so where does, and that was the issue that you were talking about originally, the renegotiation with the agents, right? Or is that still the issue now? Uh, well, the agent negotiation is something that we waged for like 18 months. We won. We kicked their asses. That's we, right. We forced the agencies to sell their production arms. They were all getting into producing. We forced them to do that. We forced them to sign new contracts that eliminated the conflict of interest. Oh, good. And, so and now we're onto the studios. Yeah. So now this is, so what I'm talking about is where we're at now is that yep. in this tech model where bullshit is at a premium. Yep. Um, they want to pay the writers as just, you know, day workers. Yeah, Th- that's basically right. I mean, the there's a lot of hay being made about the transition to streaming. I think a little bit, there's a little bit too much emphasis on that. The fundamental thing is yeah. that the companies have a strategy of trying to put keep money in their pockets by not giving it to workers. And they've come up with 10,000 different ways to do that. And so I could list... 10 different ways they've run, done it to writers and 10 different ways they've done it to actors. And some of them are the same and some of them are different. Um, but that's the that's the fundamental story. Um, so, yeah, one of those is by, uh, you know, trying to uh, keep keep a lid on the data from streaming and make it impossible for not just actors and writers, but also like producers to ever get any back end participation. Used to be if you had a this used to be an entrepreneurial town, right? Used to be if you had an idea for a show, whether you're a writer, an actor or just some fucking producer, just some like, you know, asshole in a suit, right? You could you could uh, go sell it to some other company and then you would get a piece of it forever, right? And you could uh if you had And if it got a high share, you were the guy. Exactly, right? And you would participate in the profit, you know, show like friends, right? The people who created friends, they have the, you know, they, they have God knows how much amount of money everyone involved in that, right? Yeah. Is profiting on it forever. And that um, was also when syndication was part of the equation. Exactly, right? But but 
right now, I mean, we still have syndication. Yeah, right? you could. People are watching Friends every night of the week. Sure. Um, on but, Netflix, it was uh, for a while. Exactly. Yeah. Now I forget which streamer it's on now, but these are in fact the most valuable shows. Shows like Friends. Sure. Except that. Uh, the contract that we have uh, doesn't, you know, provide us near, you know, nearly the same upside in, in residuals. Uh, like literally, we're talking like one percent. When it was know. on network oh, or a network, network or cable. Okay. So part of the, part of this is that yes, there's a transition to streaming. We have to update all our contracts for streaming because the way they're all written is, you know, uh, they they only apply to the media that currently exists, right? So first, the Writers Guild covered movies, then television was invented. We got to get coverage of television. Then cable was invented. Okay, now we got to get coverage of cable, right? That's always the fight for a union and and unfortunately that puts us at a disadvantage and and, but. and and the big problem then like on a basic level is that these are publicly traded companies these streamers and they are buying up other you know networks and whatnot and now all these old-time studios have streaming arms but yeah. the bigger streamers you know the reason they protect their data is because they're publicly held companies and you know if the truth were to come out about how many people are really watching or, or what's really happening, that it would be, you, you know, uh, much smaller than their... their... I'm, not, uh, I'm not convinced of that. Uh, yeah. that that's a theory some have that it's going to, like, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be exposed that no one is actually watching the shows. Uh. I think it's just... These companies, because they're tech companies, they see data as a resource. They see it as oil. Yeah. You know, it's an oil field. Sure. They want to be the only ones who pump it. Yeah. Um, if you're in control of the information, you have all the power. Yeah. Uh, and so they don't want to release the data for that simple reason. Now, I think they're bringing advertising back in. They're going to have to release data soon. But Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because advertisers demand are going to need to know it. They're going to need to have it. So tell me, like, where we're at with the negotiations and, sure. and what are we specifically negotiating for? Let's talk about... Uh, AI for a second. Yeah, I keep getting hung up on this idea. Isn't there like for has the idea of these sort of uh, uh, these images or well, with writers? It's it's the idea that AI can generate scripts yeah. for anything. But you know, there's also this idea of owning someone's um, yep I identity in likeness in yeah. per perpetuity. Uh, with just a, a flat rate, you know, here's a one-shot payment. Yeah. Is there any way to negotiate that stuff as animation? Uh, I mean, I think you're not wrong because my view is that AI is a marketing term that the tech industry came up with to make us think this technology could do more than it can to frighten people, to make us to make us do what they say, right? Yeah. People like Sam Altman from OpenAI are going around going, oh, AI could become super powerful, and so you need to put in place the laws that I say, yeah. right? So that China doesn't beat us and all this bullshit, yeah. right? What they have is they have a loosely connected bunch of technologies, some of which are kind of cool, right? Yeah. But they haven't, like, invented a new wheel or something. Yeah. This is just, like... What do they have? Large language models. This is a piece of software. You put text in one end, you can get text out the other end that yeah. resembles w uh, an answer to the question you asked, yeah. right? Uh, then they also now have the ability to uh, reproduce people's likenesses. I don't, like, are we calling that AI? Two years ago, that was just called VFX. It was yeah. just called CGI. They already did that to the guy in the Star Wars movie, the guy who played, whatever, Grand Moff Tarkin or whatever. Yeah. They reproduced this guy after he was dead. They didn't need to call it AI. Yeah. 
So these are two completely different technologies. Um, but uh, the fear is not of the technology itself. Yeah. The fear is what the motherfuckers running the companies are going to do with it. The problem isn't learning. We learned to split the atom. The problem is building the bomb. Right. And uh, so uh, writers and actors have very different concerns yeah. around what those things are. For actors, it's control over their likenesses. It's the you know the AMPTP yeah. literally proposed that you pay act you pay could pay an actor one day's work and then they own your likeness and they can puppet you around right. in perpetuity. Right. That's clearly not something that the actors union can accept. For writers, it's slightly different because the point that I want to draw is that large language models cannot do the work of a writer because doing the work of a writer is not outputting a script. Doing the work of a writer is, yes, typing, but then also talking to the network executive to get their notes, talking to the director, talking to the actor, right? And, yeah. and integrating all of that. And talking and it, to other writers. Talking to other writers, right? Um, working in a group. Then it's going to set, listening to the read, going, oh, that line actually doesn't work sure. when I hear you say it. We got to rewrite it. Then going to the going to the edit and but, saying, but we got to cut that scene. Right, you but know? isn't the fear that they can cut out all of that up to reading it? The fear is that they are they are going to you know say hey here's a great script that Chat GPT wrote yeah. now we just need you to punch it up talk to the writer talk to the actor talk to uh, talk to the director take all of our notes yeah. go to set uh, go to post oh but you're not a writer Chat GPT wrote it you're just an associate fucking producer right. or whatever yeah. you're making minimum wage you're yeah. not making you're doing the same work you were five years ago right. but now you're making a fraction of it and yeah. so. You know, we have proposals that say, basically say they can't do that. That, that you know, first of all, someone needs to be, we need writers to be there through production. We need writers to be there in post because that's the, the uh, that is where writing happens. And you can't pass off the work of AI as our work product, um, et cetera. And they stonewalled us on those proposals. They're pretty simple proposals. Uh, most of them aren't, don't even cost them anything. Yeah. Is the fear, like, do, are they banking on the idea that they'll, they'll, Put a bunch of us, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put myself into the writer position, even mm -hmm. though it's not my bread and butter, but I am a Guild member, is is the is part of their game to starve out as many as possible, get them to move on, and then just believe that audiences will adapt to the garbage that's left over. That's absolutely what the model is. I mean, what they want to do is destroy a healthy industry that people love. Um, they want to cut the corners off of it. They want to make it cheaper, and they don't care how much worse it makes the product. And they frankly don't even care if it shrinks the entire industry if it means they get to keep a larger portion of it. Uh, so what they're trying to do to writers is put us on a freelance model. They're trying to end the writer's room entirely. They're trying to say, instead of, hey, let's get a bunch of writers, get some minds together, have them really beat this thing out, come up with a great show like The, the Bear or any other show you want to, yeah. where that was the product of a writer's room. And instead they want to say, hey, we're going to hire one person, you get some money, uh, but you got to write the whole season yourself. Here's 10 grand. You can farm out some scripts to freelancers if you like. And then all those other writers who are maybe getting a script farmed out, they're going to be lucky to work on that script Saturday and Sunday. And then on Monday, they go back to your go back to their day job. Right. And that'll hurt the product. There's no way that that won't make it worse. But it'll kill the industry. It'll kill the industry. A really good example of this, I think, is VFX because, you know, CGI, all that. Yeah. When that came about. In the 90s, right? You remember it was like, oh my God, we're going to wow the audience with it. Look, here's the Terminator. He's turned into silver. Here's Jurassic Park, right? Toy Story. Look how amazing it is. Yeah. Now they use it to cut costs. Now they say, instead of going to the location, what if we just shoot it on a green screen, send the footage to a bunch of people who are paid sub-minimum wage in Korea, they crank it out. We don't care that it looks like shit. Now people go to see a movie that's done with VFX. They're like, that looked awful, Yeah. right? It, do it did not look good to me. People are sick of the product. And even when they make these, you know, the, the, the 
Flash movie everybody hated. Nobody watched it. They're just, they only take that as an excuse. We just got to pump harder. We just got to like shove this shit in people's faces even more. Until they placated. Exactly. Hypnotized. And, and you know, we're fighting back against that. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the, the fact that Look at just this last weekend that, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer, two movies made by auteur directors starring a great cast that had original ideas, right, were the biggest sellers and all the, you know, all the shit like nobody has been watching for the last year. Maybe they'll take a note from that. Probably not. Um, but, you know, what we're doing instead is rather than hoping, we're forcing them. Then that is to circle back to talking about making change, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the wonder, the thing that inspires me so much about a union that I love about a union is instead of just like, you know, signal boosting and asking and donating and stuff like that, a union is a mechanism by which a group of people can force change to happen. It's, it's we, we know what our power is. They cannot make anything without us. Without scripts, they have nothing to make. And so we're gonna, uh, we're, and we are literally on the picket line to force them to reckon with that. They've forgotten, Ted Sarandos does know that you know and we are here to remind them no you actually fucking need the unions and we are not going to let the industry proceed unless you agree to our demands and it's interesting that you know i think some people forget you know especially in this town uh, you know i went and on the picket line last friday is that the the idea of the of the picket line is to stop people from working yeah Yes. Not going in, just yes. shaming scabs. Yes. And, you know, and I brought up the other day, I don't know who I was talking to, but it's like, if this were another industry, the, you know, the, the company would send stooges out, you know, to start <laughs> yeah. beating up the guys out in front of Netflix. As they did for many years. But yeah. they, I don't think they figured out how to do that with CGI. You know, they, they, maybe Netflix could just beam some uh, tough guy with clubs. <laughs> I mean, they try to intimidate us, you know, they've, they've said uh, in the press that their plan is to starve us out until we've all lost our homes uh, and, and apartments and have become homeless. That's a thing like studio executives actually said to a reporter. Um, and, you know, I, I think what they didn't count on is that, A, the internet exists now and that people saw that outside of Hollywood and were horrified by it. Yeah. We had an outpour outpouring of public support. But also... You know, folks, the fundamental fact is people cannot make a living in the, in the entertainment industry anymore. The middle class nature of this industry has the bottom has fallen out of it. And in the Writers Guild, we assemble the you know, we listen to our members all year long and we fight for them all year long. And we heard those stories and we fought. Right. sag is a union that has a little bit less of that history. They, they don't have that fighting spirit or that fighting muscle yeah. quite as developed. Yeah. Um, but. They heard it from their own members enough. They're uh, actors saying, I can't make a living anymore. That that union stepped up too and went out on strike as well. And we're, we can't be intimidated because everybody knows if we don't win this fight, we're not going to have jobs to go back to. No one's going to say, oh, God, let's just take a deal. I want to, you know, I need to pay my rent because people couldn't pay their rent before. So uh, we're going to stay out there and that's why we're going to win. Where is it now? Anywhere? So SAG after going out uh, and going on strike was for the studio executives, that was their version of Trump getting elected. That was the thing they never saw, they never thought could happen in, in a million years, right? So that happened a week and a half ago, yeah. SAG after called the strike. They spent the first week just shitting themselves, yeah. going like, wait, what the fuck is canceled? Yeah. What can I not have now? How much money am I losing? 
So they've got to be hemorrhaging money. They're hemorrhaging money. Um, they're getting it. Wall Street is starting to scream at them. You know, they're starting to realize that they need to get involved because yeah. the the way that the they they normally do it is the CEOs have outsourced this organization called the AMPTP. Yeah. The point of the AMPTP is to be the no machine. They just say no, 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 no. What's that stand for? American Motion Picture uh, uh, Television. And television producers. Yeah. yeah. And and so the whole point is that people like David Zaslav and Ted Sarandos don't even have to think about negotiations because Carol at the AMPTP is handling it for them. Carol at the AMPTP fucking failed. We're on strike now. And so now the motherfuckers at the top have to start going, oh God, I got to get involved. Okay, I got to... I got to call David, you know, like, yeah. David, what do we fucking do? Okay, we got to go talk to these guys. But normally these companies hate each other's guts, right? Ted Sarandos and David Zaslav are yeah. enemies most yeah. of the time. So they have to somehow figure out a way to come back to the table with us and give us a deal that we are going to be satisfied by. And that's just going to take them a little bit of time, you know, to, yeah. to get their logistics in order. But that's the part of the process we're in now. They're, we're not, they're not waiting us out. They are shitting their pants, taking a shower, putting their underwear on, <laughs> like having to get cleaned up and come to the table. And that's going to take a couple weeks, maybe months. But, um, you know, once they've done it, then, you know, we're, we're going to be back and to work. Are you finding that there is any, is there a scab problem? Oh, God, I, I don't think so. Yeah, like, see, that's what's amazing. Yeah, I, I mean. Because there's not really, they can't, so there's no like secret, there's no like, it's not farm work. Yeah. Like they, there's not these people that's like, fuck it, let's just bring in these other guys. Yeah. To write. I mean. People think that there it is because, uh, you know, in their darker moments, writers will be like, oh, so many people would like to have this job. Can't they replace this easily? It's fucking hard to be a TV writer. Like it's it takes a lot of expertise. Yeah, You can't take a guy that just got out of college and make him a showrunner. Yeah. Or an actor or anything else. I mean, even fucking being a reality star which, which who are not union, that is not easy either. They need to find just the right person. So, uh, yeah, there's not. There, that's not happening. That's not happening. Um, there's extremely high participation. I mean, both the Writers Guild and SAG after had votes of like 98% oh, to go great. on strike. Yeah. Um, it, it's total unanimity out there. And, and you know, even sometimes people get worried about like a counter example or two, a big yeah. showrunner who who doesn't see themselves as a guild member. Even that is like the, the, the so much the exception to yeah. the rule, you yeah. know, when we've got, you know, folks like the Duffer Brothers who make Stranger Things, they yeah. shut down production. We're no more, Ted doesn't get any more Stranger Things. Yeah. Right? That's his Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, his, that's when he gets all of his new yeah. subscribers every year. So uh, he doesn't get any until he comes to the table. And, and that's the sort of participation we've had. I guess, like what you were saying before, is that this has to happen with the prog with the evolution of technology yeah. and the evolution of how people take in this product and how yeah. it's delivered. But so, given these hidden numbers and given the nature of, of, of tech secrecy and the idea that this oil they have is really data and, and, and ultimately mm -hmm. that's connected to subscribers and, and people, do you think that some sort of residual system or profit sharing system is possible and, and, and what you're sort of hoping to get? Yeah, I do. Uh, and it, so... The last time writers and actors went on strike together was 1960. That was when residuals were invented yeah. the first time. Also when our pension and health plans were were fu were founded. Uh, and so that's the amount of power that we have again now. Uh, it's that kind of year. It's a historic year. This hasn't happened in 63 years. Mm. Um, uh, that's one thing. Yeah. But the, the main reason I think it's going to happen is because they need us. Like they have convinced themselves that they don't, that, oh, we're the masters of the universe. But in fact, 
uh, the the work done by uh, you know, Hollywood writers and Hollywood actors is the most valuable media property in the world. Has been for a hundred years. It'll continue to be. People watch reality shows. People watch you know Korean dramas. I like Korean dramas. Those aren't what drives the subscribers for them. It's it's it is American television and media, and they actually will not get any until they actually come to the table. And we actually will not leave the picket line until we have those residuals in place. Um, and uh, that that's the only way that it can end. And 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 also, what ultimately happens is is uh, a somewhat a leveling of the playing field again, because what they stand to lose. Our CEO salaries, yeah, and and uh, and shareholders, yeah. So you know, somehow or another, it's going to have to be communicated that if they want to stay in business, you know, this is the structure it's going to have to be, and maybe their Nasdaq value will go down a little bit, and maybe Ted will have to, you know, uh, get rid of one of the houses, yeah. But uh, but ultimately, if if you guys succeed, it, it will increase competition and, and increase opportunity. Well, first of all, if we if we succeed, because you said you're a member, um, and we're all in it together. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, absolutely, it will. I mean, the fact that uh, you know Tav- David Zaslav taking two hundred fifty million dollars in one year in in his own compensation is not good for the economy. It's not good for the stock market. It's not good for the industry. Um, it's good for David. It's good for David, right? <laughs> and and so. So, but a system in which the people who make the product are well compensated is better for the overall economy. I mean, the reason that L.A. has is a great city to any extent is because for a hundred years, writers, actors, directors, artists have come here because this is the one place you can fucking get paid, right? And also everyone behind the camera, the all exactly the other unions, right. and you have support from all the other unions, I would imagine. We absolutely do, um, and that's that. It's a really historic thing that, this year as well. Like, Teamsters giving you information, uh, correct? Yeah, uh, and uh, IATSE members, crew members, not crossing our picket lines. Yep, uh, at expense to themselves, right? Because they are turning down work when they do that, but they are doing it because they believe in our fight and because they know that next year when they have a negotiation we'll be on their side as well and you better fucking believe we will be because we're so grateful to them um we've got pas on our picket line people who aren't even in a union and it's because who want a future who want a future and uh, part of it is this is the national spirit of the time right like what the last time the writers go went on strike in 2007 it was for coverage of the internet it was a great fight we won thank god we did but the whole country was against us people were like why are the writers going on strike right now now everybody is on our side fucking president obama right who has a deal with netflix <laughs> and and normally wouldn't take a stance on this came out on our side right and it's yeah. because uh, yeah. everybody is getting fucked this way everybody in every job has he gone to the America. picket line uh you know not not yet and and if you're if he's still listening to the show uh we, we'd love to have him come down i'm at netflix every day from nine to twelve uh come on down but everybody is going through this everybody is it working for a job where you know the the fruits of your labor are being concentrated in the hands of the people at the top. We've got record low unemployment, like 3% unemployment, and people can't afford rent or to send their kids to the country. college. In the entire country. Yeah, but it's interesting, too. You, it, there has to be a reframing of the conversation with, you know, what is the right-wing perception of Hollywood. It's like there's still a lot of people out there that don't think we work. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's a real short-sighted, dumb, shallow yep. interpretation of what goes into making 
uh, entertainment yeah. and into this level of, and I hate using the term, storytelling yeah. and, and also spectacle. I'd love those people to come down and spend one day on a TV set, you know, no because shit. It's, a, it's a factory floor. It's you know? crazy, dude. It is hard. Even as an actor, right? Being an actor, athletic, physical work, yeah. you're dehydrated, yeah. you're like, you do not move from the spot you're supposed to be or in you're for in 12 hours. you're in a trailer for 12 yeah. hours waiting for lighting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of waiting, but it's like, you know, the, it's a big business it, it, and it's a big yeah. American business. It is sort of historical in terms of union activity across the board. Absolutely. Because post-COVID and, and employment in the service industry, yep. in, in show business, in yep. the transportation industry. I mean, shit is happening. Yeah. I mean, the UPS Teamsters, just uh, you know, one of the, the largest union in the country, they had a democratic revolution at their union. New mil militant leadership came in. They leveled a big-ass strike threat, and they got a big-ass contract. Thankfully, they didn't have to go on strike because you know they didn't have to make that sacrifice, but they were showed they were willing to do it. Yeah. And they changed you know they changed reality for 300,000 uh, teamsters uh, across the country and you know the the really fucking the thing that really gets me jazzed about the labor movement is everybody has this opportunity you know like like you, you have a federally protected right to form a union at your workplace and it starts by having just like daily conversations and with it, your but it, coworkers. But it, not unlike we were talking about public school early on in the conversation in terms of the sort of business driven business owned republican agenda right you know dumbing the people down on purpose to, yep. to to meet their own greed ends they they've also characterized somehow unions as being negative over for the last 30 or 40 years. Exactly right. And people say, oh, all a union does is to protect the lazy workers, et cetera, et cetera. People are not educated about their rights under labor And why law. unions were put together. Exactly. Was to protect workers. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. You know, the, the mindfuck of, of, and the, the amazing uh, kind of uh, precision over 30 or 40 years that they were able to make voters vote actively and, and, and verbally against their self-interest yep. is kind of uh, another conversation that, that has to do with uh, psychology, consciousness, propaganda. Yeah. And uh, and late stage capitalism, but it's a concerted uh, effort, you yeah. know, to, to on get behalf of business, of yeah, and those who represent business, yeah, yeah, to to make people think that they don't have those rights, to think that if they use the rights, they'll come out worse than they yeah. were, you know. That happened in our industry, you know. There there were not strikes for for decades because the industry convinced even the union members that strikes were bad, yeah, um, and that you couldn't win, and that we're finally disproving that. The again. studios did that. The studios did that. It was yeah. it was a literal propaganda. Yes. I mean, I could walk you through how they yeah, did it, yeah. but. They literally convinced a generation of actors, writers, directors yeah. that don't use your power. Just cut a cut a nice, friendly deal. We'll take care of you. We'll take care of you. Don't worry yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. guess what? Some unions did that for many years. SAG-AFTRA was one of those unions. The Writers Guild was at one point, too. And then eventually, their workers got so fucked yeah. after decades of that, they started going like, what the f We can't make a living. Hold on a second. There's yeah. this thing called a union. Yeah, yeah. Let's, what if we yeah. actually did it, right? And yeah. people are having that realization across America. Or they're saying, wait, what if we started a union, yeah. which is much harder. But, sure, like the Starbucks workers. The Starbucks workers yeah. are doing heroic work um, yeah. doing that. It's like so inspirational. They're going store by store. Um, because and, so many, yeah. So many of the uh, greed-driven corporate entities and and privatized social services, you know, have a lot invested in people not unionizing. Yeah. Well, thanks for your service. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, it was great talking to you. It was wonderful being here. Thanks so much, Mark. Well, there you go. That should get you up to speed. Uh Again, his podcast called Factually, you can get uh, wherever you get podcasts and follow him on 
social media for regular strike updates. Hang out for a minute. All right, people, on the latest Full Marin bonus episode, I watched Dario Argento's Suspiria with Kit, and then we talked about it. Okay, so we enter this thing, and all over, right away, there's this jacked color. Yes. Um, I don't know what you call that type of color. It, they actually decided that they wanted to uh, have the palette for this film be primary colors. Um, the reason for that was the inspiration was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the Walt Disney movie. Really? Yeah. Yeah. The cartoon. Mm-hmm. The, the super amped up red and blue and yellow colors in that cartoon. And so they they found one of the last studios in the world that was still printing on like three color Technicolor uh-huh. um, to, to make this movie. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so wild because like you notice it right away. But I also, for some reason, it reminded me of... Uh, Brian De Palma movies. Oh yeah, yeah. Like uh, I can see that. Dress to Kill and some of the earlier Brian De Palma movies seemed. It just seemed to even ha- even the ending scene in Scarface. With, yeah, yeah, like it's jacked. The <laughs> yeah, colors are jacked. jacked. You can listen to all the recent Mark on Movies bonus episodes where I learn about some new genres from Kit. You can sign up using the link in the episode description or go to wtfpod.com. And click on WTF Plus. Next week, we have Jessica Chastain on Monday and comedian Namesh Patel on Thursday. And this might be the last time I play guitar without a uh, click track. I figured out I can do a click track if I just use the little um, timer thing. That I have a thing on my phone that, that gives you a click. And if I put my earbuds in with a click, maybe I can keep time better. But So this is the last messy one.
Boomer lives. Monkey in La Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. Could you hear that? <laughs>